Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's go. We got some work to do this morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, that's found on page 688, Ephesians chapter 2. As you know, we have been working our way through 1 Corinthians, and uh, obviously Ephesians chapter 2 is not 1 Corinthians. We're going to pick back up in our study of 1 Corinthians next week. We thought these kind of these two holiday weekends, um, it would be good for us to hit the pause button on that. And uh, also, this being the first Sunday of the new year, I'm going to give you a sort of overarching message about the philosophy of ministry and our heartbeat here at Crosspoint. And I like to do that at the beginning of the year to recalibrate us, so to speak, on our purpose as a church and why we exist. And so, um, know that we're going to pick back up in 1 Corinthians next week. We're going to work through all of chapter 5. I think that the message and the content of the next few chapters in Corinthians are going to be some of the most important things that we look at together as a church. And so look ahead, read ahead, pray that the Lord would give us wisdom. There's going to be some difficult topics that I I need to address about church discipline and immorality. And that's why we preach through books of the Bible for most of our time, because uh, it keeps us from avoiding issues like the things that we're going to get into the next couple weeks. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, All right. Several years ago, when, uh, when we started Crosspoint, probably the question that was asked of me most is, what's your vision for Crosspoint? What's your vision for the church? And I always felt like that was a bit of a, kind of a peculiarly American church question. And what I mean by that is, it's, it's I think the church has mirrored the world a lot more than impacted the world in America. And so we, we sort of have adopted visionarying principles and, uh, and corporate mentalities in the church, I think, more than biblical mentalities. And I think what sometimes, and I understand what people are asking in that, is, is what's your plan to grow the church numerically? That's sort of the, the subconscious underlying tone of what's your vision. And I always sort of stumbled through that because I never really had a good little answer. I didn't have a little acrostic that had all the, you know, things start in the same letter or something some catchphrase that looked good on a website. Uh, I always just kind of went back to, after I mumbled through a pretty pathetic little answer to that, I always just kind of went back to, we want to make much of Jesus. And over the past few years, as, uh, as the Lord has given us more clarity about who we are as a church, we have sort of settled on three questions that define us as a church. Three questions that we want to continually ask ourselves and answer faithfully and biblically. And so today, I am going to ask and answer those three questions for you. And from these three questions, and the way we answer them corporately as a church, we really get our vision, our collective philosophy of ministry, why we're doing what we are doing. And before we get into those three questions, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2. And generally, we look at a passage of Scripture... And then we do what's called expositional preaching, which means that we look at a passage of Scripture and we want to make the point of the message the point of the passage. We don't want to come to the Bible with an idea or a creative thought from a pastor and then try and 
cherry-picked Bible verses around it. Generally, that's why we're preaching through 1 Corinthians. We want to look at the Bible because we believe it's God's inspired word to us. And we want to think about what it is saying to us. That's important. Today, we're going to do something just a bit different. And we are going to look at our philosophy of ministry. But we're going to use Ephesians chapter 2 as a sort of springboard. Let me give you those three questions. If you've been in our new member class, or if you've been around here for a while, you're familiar with them. We'll have them up on the screen. Let me give you those three questions and let me read Ephesians 2. And before I do that, Jamie Rosa, the Italian stallion, is here in the house he is part of this church, but he is away at this little college called Harvard in Boston, and he's studying. Uh, he's getting a master's degree in something really difficult, and actually he's studying religion there. His hope is to be a professor and be a light for the gospel in the academic uh, uh, world, and so he's here getting his master's degree there, home from Harvard, and um, I think uh, you should give him a hug and ask him uh, how he likes clam chowder. I I couldn't think of anything else to say. All right, let's go. Here's the three questions. The first question is the question of the gospel. Who is Jesus? Who does the Bible say that Jesus is? And what has he done? What has God done in Christ to reconcile a lost world to himself? Who is Jesus? That is the most important question that any person or any church will ever answer. And friends, we all answer it, either by consciously engaging that question and responding to it or rejecting it or ignoring it. Either way, every person on this earth that has ever lived has responded to that question. Who is Jesus? That's the question of the Gospels, the message of the Scriptures. Who is Jesus? Secondly is the issue of community. How is God, how is Jesus in light of what he has done for us, calling us to live together and do life together as a people, a local expression of his redeemed church. It's a question of community. How has he called us to do life together? And then the third question that oftentimes we don't consider is that what now is Jesus calling us to do? What is the mission that he has us as a people and us as individuals on. He didn't just call us for us to be, and save us for us to be trophies of his grave, uh, grace so that we would sit as sort of conduits or, or I'm sorry, a cul-de-sacs or, or, or cesspools of his redemptive grace. But he calls us so that, and saves us and brings us back to life so that through our lives he would display his infinite grace and power to the world. Those three questions. Who is Jesus? How has he called us to live together? And what mission has he put us on as a people are the three things that we want to consider today. Let me read Ephesians chapter 2, portions of it as a launching pad for us, and then we'll get to the work of answering those three questions. Paul's writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2. By the way, I believe Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, Uh, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, and Ephesians chapter 2, I think are some of the most important words ever written, and you would do well to feast on Ephesians chapter 2, in particular the first 10 verses. This is what Paul writes, speaking not just to the Ephesians, but to everyone, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and, and of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now skip to verse 19 of chapter 2. Paul now begins to lay out some consequences of this saving work of Christ in the lives of his people. And he writes in verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand these words. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of these words that you have gathered together for us and collected for us as your holy scripture. We humble ourselves underneath them and we collectively submit to their authority. We come to them not in a spirit of judgment or hoping to find one or two principles by which we might live a more productive life, but we come humble, naked and bare, as Hebrew says, ready to be judged and pierced by this word. Lord, I pray that as we think about what it means to be a church and to understand and live out the gospel, I pray that for the Christians in this room that you would stir our affections for Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would help us see more clearly who we are in light of Christ and his cross and his resurrection and who we are in relation to one another. I pray, God, that would stir in us passion and joy and a desire to live out the gospel. Lord, for the people in this room who are not yet born again, they have not yet trusted in a saving way in Jesus, I pray that today you would do what only you can do, that you would make dead people come back to life by the power of your gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross. And I pray that you would give those that are among us that that is 
the case that they do not know you. I pray that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith so that they would see Jesus. And Lord, I pray these things in the mighty power of the name of Christ, our great God and King. Amen. The first question that we want to continually ask and answer well as a church is the question of the gospel. Who is Jesus and what has he done? A good way that we like to summarize the gospel here at Crosspoint is to look at the story, the narrative story of the gospel in the scriptures by summarizing it with four words. And those four words are God, man, Christ, and response. God, man, Christ, and response. Let me kind of explain each of those and how those four words fit together to describe the biblical storyline of what God has done in Christ on the cross to reconcile his people to himself. The first is God. Everything begins with God. You see, friends, the gospel is not just a little phrase about how Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life or how Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. Those things may be true in, 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 in an isolated sense, but they don't explain the full biblical gospel. The, the gospel starts with God. Everything starts with God. He is the beginning and the end. He is the center of the universe. He is everything. And the Bible says in Psalm 115, verse 3, that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Romans 11, verse 36 Paul writes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God has always existed. He is unexplainable. He cannot fit within human rationality. God is God. He is the creator of the universe. He exists in this beautiful harmony called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Eternally preexistent from, from Alpha to Omega. And out of the overflow of his creative joy, not because he needed us, not because he got bored with himself, but because he is glorious and good, he created all that there is. And that gets us to the second word of our four words, man. God creates man as an overflow of his joy for a display of his glory. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, Verse 27, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And so every living person, regardless of whether or not they have responded to Christ or whether or not they have been Christians in their life here on this earth, every person in this room and every person that has ever lived is created in the image of God. There is this beautiful dignity, even though it has been marred by sin and rebellion and spiritual death, there is this beautiful dignity in the life of every person because the Bible tells us that we have all been created in the image of God. But as the Bible tells us and as we know just innately by our own experience, we as God's creation have thumbed our noses at God. Every person, every man, every boy, every girl, everyone that has ever lived save Jesus has rebelled against God. And this sin has this rebellion against God has brought with it the consequences of death. This is the way the Bible puts it in Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. It says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Some of you may say, well, what about the Christian who's a very good moral person? What about them? They seem to do good works. But friends, when you, when you, when you investigate their goodness even down to the bottom of it, to do good apart from response to God, to not acknowledge God in your goodness is at its height glory thievery. 
So the person that is moral and seemingly good on a societal plane that does not acknowledge God, that does not know God, is really not good. They are actually unrighteous because they are trusting in their own autonomy, which is a false hope. They are trusting in their own goodness apart from their creator. They are saying that my goodness detached from a recognition of the one who made me is good. And friends, really at the core of that idea, nothing could be more treasonous. And so when you think about it, I think it's clear to see that none is righteous. Every person save Jesus has rebelled against God. The Bible says that there are consequences for man in his sin. In Romans 5 verse 12, it says, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Death came, physical death came, spiritual death came, emotional death came, and most of all, our our connection to our Father, our Creator, God, died in that moment. We became spiritually separated from God in our sin. And that's what we read at the beginning in Ephesians 2. It says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We are by nature children of wrath. The great reformers of the church coined this phrase, total inability. It means that we are completely unable to save ourselves. It doesn't mean that we are unable to do decent things or to even create and invent amazing things. You look at the advance of society and you say, is everything that has ever been done by man evil? Well, in a sense, when it's separated from God, yes, definitely. But, but it's not to say that we are completely, we have no ability, but it's to say that we are totally unable because of our spiritual sin and our death that has resulted from it. We are completely unable to save ourselves. This is the way the Bible puts it in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, and that's Paul, the writer of Romans, that's his phrasing for a person who is not a Christian. For the mind that is set on the flesh is, listen to this, listen to these words, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That doesn't mean that they're terrorists or felons or evil crime uh, committing people, but it means that in respect to making themselves right again with the God that we have all rebelled against, they are, we are all of us completely unable in and of ourselves because of our stain by our nature and by our choice of sin. We are completely unable to please God in and of ourselves. That's mankind. That's the clear biblical witness. Now, that's not the natural thought of every American because we live in a culture of false self-esteem where we tell each other how great we are. Oh, you're wonderful. But the biblical witness is clear that we are not wonderful. We are not just people who have been neutralized. We are people who have rebelled against God. The consequence of it is sin and death. And we stand opposed to our Creator. And we stand under His wrath. And in response to that, God sends Jesus, the third word of our narrative of the gospel, God, man, Christ, before the foundations of the world. This didn't sneak up on God. Human rebellion did not sneak up on God, but God in his wise providence before the foundations of the world planned for Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to come when, as Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, he came and he took on flesh. And Jesus comes as 
the perfect God-man, completely God, but yet completely human. The Bible says in Hebrews that he was tempted as always, as, as in every way that we are yet without sin. It says that he had to become like his brothers in every way so that he could help them when the time came. And he becomes, in the flesh, the perfect representation of obedience to God. And he does what we could not do. He obeys God perfectly in everything. He resists sin. He resists temptation. And he resists it to the end. And what he's doing is he resists everything that you and I have fallen to. Is he is building up righteousness. He is becoming an acceptable sacrifice to God. And the Bible says that he willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice, a wrath-absorbing substitute of God's justice that is barreling down on the head of every human being. The Bible says that Christ becomes the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for all those that would repent and trust in him. This is the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. Some of the most important words in the Bible. (laughs) I know I say that a lot. It's all important. But there are some verses that in particular highlight what God has done in Christ. And this is one of them. It says in Romans 3, verse 23 through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Listen now, listen to that verse. It says that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. What does that word mean? It means an atoning sacrifice. It means that God put Jesus forward as a wrath absorbing substitute to absorb his justice, to satisfy his justice against human rebellion so that God, when he saves people through Jesus, doesn't go back on his word. His his justice is not just erased. It is satisfied on Christ on the cross. And God puts him forward. So the question that sometimes pops up in popular Christianity, who killed Jesus, my sin, the Romans, the Jews? Well, in a sense, I guess you could could think about it that way. But the, the deeper, more profound biblical truth is that God killed Jesus for you and me and all who would trust in him. He puts him forward as a wrath absorbing sacrifice. Friends, that is love. God killed his son to satisfy his justice so that he wouldn't waver at all on his godness, so that he remains perfectly just and does not tolerate rebellion. He satisfies his wrath and his justice by offering his son as the only sacrifice that can satisfy and absorb his justice. Then the Bible says that Jesus rose again in victory over his death and sin and all of its consequences and now commands all people everywhere to repent. So up to this point, we have, we have three words. God, the creator of all things, the good, holy, righteous, providential, sovereign God of everything, who out of an overflow of his creative joy creates 
the universe and everything that is, and as the pinnacle of his creation, he creates Adam and Eve and every person that has ever lived, and we willingly rebelled against God, and our consequences brought with them spiritual death and separation from God, and God sends himself in the form of his son Jesus to absorb the penalty for our sin, and that now brings us to the fourth word of this narrative of the gospel, response. All of that is just information. Lots of people believe that, but not a lot of people have necessarily trusted in that in the same way. It gets to the response. Jesus says, at the beginning of his public ministry in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, repent and believe the gospel, the good news. The gospel is a word that means good news. In other words, repent and believe in what I am about to do in my life on this cross. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. I just quoted it just a second ago. Jesus now commands all people everywhere to repent. And at the end of John chapter 3, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So Jesus' death on the cross, listen to me closely, friends. Jesus' death on the cross does not secure universal redemption for everyone just because God is sort of a benevolent grandpa. God is just. The love of God is a much more complex and biblical and magnificent thing than just human broken forms of love where we say, ah, no big deal, whatever. No, God is righteous. God is holy. And God only saves those who trust in Christ. And you trust in Christ by turning. That's this word repent. You repent from your sin and you repent from self-righteousness. You repent from trust in your own merits to make you right with God. And you then believe you have saving faith. You, you trust in what Jesus has done on the cross in his death, his burial, and his resurrection as the only as the only hope of your right standing with God. That's what it means to believe, to put the force and the weight of your life on what Christ has done. It's not to cognitively agree with the fact that there was a historical man named Jesus who died on a cross. It is to put the weight of your hope for right standing with God in what he has done. And those two things, that repentance, that ability to turn from your own sin and self-righteousness and then believe in Jesus, those are gifts. This is what makes the gospel so scandalously good and such an amazing uh, form of grace is that even the things that he requires of us, which are repentance or belief, because remember when we read in Romans 8 where it says that we in our natural mind, we cannot please God. And so you may be saying, well, if I can't please God, How can I conjure up the work of repentance and sorrow for my rebellion and trust in him? Well, this is the great news, friends. That's the scandal of God's grace. That's why Augustine said that the Lord gives what he commands to his people. He gives repentance. He gives faith so that they will turn and trust in what Jesus has done for them. And so you may be feeling helpless right now. That's exactly where God wants you. You may be saying, how can I believe? How can I turn from my sin? This thing that has weighed me down and ensnared me all my life, I can't break free. Exactly, friends, exactly. You probably are in a place where God has finally got you to the position where you will look up from yourself to the only one. I believe that if that's what your mind is thinking right now, it is evidence that God is very likely giving you the gift of repentance and faith. Right now, trust in him. Respond to Jesus. 
Respond to Jesus. Take the first breath of your born-again regeneration, of the fact that God has made you alive, and trust in him with repentance and belief. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. That is the story of the Bible. That is not just tucked away in Romans or tucked away in Galatians or mentioned somewhere in Ephesians. That is the gospel. That is what is going on from Genesis to Revelation. That storyline of how God is creating and calling a people and rescuing them from their own sin for his glory and their joy. That's what the Old Testament is about. All those little stories in the Old Testament of how God rescued his people are not stories so that we would stand on the edge of a sea believing that God can do a good miracle or so that we can slay a giant and have courage. They are all shadows of Christ to come. Moses is a picture of Christ who redeems his people. David is a picture of Christ who slays the giant of sin and death and evil. All the Bible is a story pointing to or pointing back to what God has done in Christ on the cross to reconcile his people to himself for his glory and their joy. Friends, the Bible is the gospel. The gospel is the Bible. It's the only story there is. And everything flows from it. And that is a question that we must answer correctly and biblically. That's what we believe about the gospel, and we believe that everything flows from it. So just a few statements before we move on to the second question. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ on the cross to redeem and restore his people to himself. The whole message of the Bible is the gospel. It's not the beginning of the story. It is the story. And now listen, friends. The gospel not only saves us, but it transforms us and makes us more like Jesus. Knowing this gospel, remembering this gospel, thinking about this gospel, hearing this gospel preached, whether you are a new Christian or an old Christian, preaching this gospel to yourself is the way that we become more like Jesus. That's why later on in Ephesians, in chapter 5, Paul writes, now, as a, as a consequence of the gospel, he writes to marriages, he writes to husbands and wives, and he's, he's writing to them, and he's saying, husbands, now love your wife as Christ loved the church, and wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and, and he's saying to a married, married couple, live your life in such a way, remember the gospel, husband, live your life in such a way that your very marriage becomes an analogy, a picture, a display of the gospel. So, so do you see how everything flows from the gospel? So in the church, when we preach on marriage or we preach on finances or we preach on your temper or we preach on relationship with other people or we preach on fear or we preach on anxiety or whatever it is, none of those things are, are sort of individual silos of truth or practicality on how to live life. No, no, all of it is connected to the gospel. All of it is, all of it is tethered to the gospel, your marriage, your sexuality, your finances, your everything, your vocation, your, your thought life, everything stems and flows from this one great truth of what God has done in Christ to redeem you and make you a showcase of his glory in the earth. That's the gospel. And that's what we believe about it. And then, as a result of the gospel, it gets us to our second question, which is, how has he called us to live together then as a community? How has he called us to live out this gospel? Jesus is not just Savior. 
but he's also our king who reigns in complete authority over our lives and calls us to live for him and his glory. Listen to this. He redeems us and knits us together into fellowship with one another. This cuts against the grain of the default of the social, of the, of the American uh, sort of individualistic, I am the captain of my own soul, consumeristic mindset. Let's go back to those words we read out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22 again. Remember, this is, this is Paul's consequence of the gospel. He saved you, verse 19 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're not disconnected people, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, it means you're one brick laid upon another brick in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so what Paul is saying here is that he saves you and then he calls us all together to be interconnected and woven together as a mosaic, as a family of God. Friends, the Bible makes no sense if you read it individualistically. The Bible, especially these New Testament letters to the churches, are written to people who are doing life together. And so it's so inappropriate, in fact, so unbiblical to read the Bible as like your personal little promise book. Certainly there are promises in the Bible that relate to us individually, but the Bible is written to a group of people or about a group of people who are committed to doing life together as God's people in response to his goodness. A couple, a couple just statements before we move on to the final point of mission. You see, friends, that the way we serve one another, the way we actually do church life here is a display of the gospel. In fact, it clarifies the gospel to the world. Do you realize that our corporate life together as a church is meant by God, intended by God, to be a corporate display of the gospel? Do you realize then how important it is for you to take very seriously your connection to your local church? Listen, we enjoy some, some wonderful relationships with other churches in this town. Uh, Keith Cowart, pastor of Christ Community Church, is a dear friend of mine. I love him. He's a big brother to me in the gospel. He, he is a wonderful friend, and I love the people at Christ Community Church. I don't know them all, obviously, but if I, if I meet somebody in the community and they tell me that they're from Christ Community, I feel a sort of immediate kindredness with them. I love them. Marlon Scott, who's the pastor of Emmanuel Christian Center, same way, I love, I love Pastor Marlon. He's a wonderful brother. And if I meet somebody from his church, there's just this sense we're connected, maybe even deeper than I'm connected to other churches in, in some way. Uh, Brian Covenant Church, I've, I've begun to meet there and know and become friends with their pastor, J.W. Norman. I love that brother. And, and, and we should all enjoy friendships in the faith outside of our local church. But do you see how we are biblically called to commit ourselves to one local expression of the church because we then become committed to one another. Then we, we sort of draw the lines, not against some other church, but we clarify to those people in our life our commitment to the gospel and then our, our ability to live out the New Testament commands. See, the New Testament makes, makes no sense about commands about submitting to leadership or, or dealing with one another's sin, which we're going to talk about next week, unless you have this clearly defined group of people that you have submitted yourself to, you've given your heart to, that you're committed to, that you're not there to consume, but you're there to serve. And so how we actually do life together, the fact that you joining a church, having your name known, you committing, you being part of it, 
that, that collectively becomes a display of the gospel. But friends, let's just confess something. That cuts against the grain of the way we think about it as American Christians. You know, we go here for a little while, and then we go here for a little while, and then maybe we go here because we like the preaching, but we go there because we like the music, and we, sh- we farm our kid out to the youth group here, and we go to Billy Bob's uh, little Bible study over here. So, I mean, there are people in this town who will go to one place for the music, jump in their car, and then they'll fly across town because they like to preach over here, and then Sunday night they'll go to Humana Humana, and then this, this church that maybe they have their name on the roll, their, their youth isn't that good, so they, they farm their kid out to some youth group, and then they got two or three little Bible studies that they go to, and do you know what the default mentality of that is? It is selfishness. It is consumerism. It is walking into the body of Christ saying, how are you going to serve me? And it's death. It's death to the mission of the church. It's death. Don't do it. Don't do it. Commit yourself to a rusty, ragtag, jacked up group of people like Cross Point or Christ Community or Winbrook Baptist or Evangel Temple or Humana Humana, whatever. Commit yourself to a church that believes in Jesus and the Bible and be gracious about its faults because you have them too, friend. You have them too. This is a whole lot better preaching than you're letting on, but I'll forgive you. So the church is to be the gospel made visible. The gospel made visible. Commitment to the local church forces you to interact with people who are outside of your demographic. And Christ calls us to live together in such a way that we collectively, the way we forgive one another, the way we bear with one another's faults, the way we don't gossip about one another, the way we handle the, the, the weak among us gently. The way we love the less lovable among us. The way we endure with patience and grace one another's sin and failure. The way we don't run at this first sign of conflict. The way we don't Exalt our preferences of music over the gospel. The way we do that, friends, collectively becomes an aroma of Christ to a world that desperately needs not church and its programs, but the corporate body of Christ living out the gospel. And that brings us to the third question is now our mission. How now is he calling us as a church to advance his kingdom. I think I'm just going to answer this by giving you just three or four statements, maybe three things that we must do and one thing that we should probably avoid. The first is, is that we should be utterly clear about what the gospel is. You see, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul writes this, that he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save. And so when we gather We are going to preach the gospel. We are going to speak the gospel. We are going to remind one another of the gospel. We are going to seek to make application of the gospel in every area of life. We're not going to start with an idea or a life topic and then try and kind of gather little verses to support how we should do that better. 
We're going to humble ourselves again and again to the authority of the gospel. This is what my historical hero Spurgeon said, and he believed in preaching like we do and expositionally through books of the Bible, but he said, I'm going to open up the Bible, explain the text, and then take a hard right to the cross. That's what we want to do in every message here. We want to open up 1 Corinthians. We want to talk about marriage. We want to talk about immorality. We want to talk about church discipline. We want to talk about spiritual gifts. We want to talk about everything and say, okay, this is what the Bible says about this. Now let's apply it to our lives through the portal of the gospel. That's what we do. We are utterly clear about what the gospel is. That's the first thing that we do as a mission together as a church. Secondly, through our life as a church together, embodying the gospel by the way we live together, as I've mentioned before, we become a corporate display of the gospel. So friends, think less in terms of programs. What do we have? Not what do we have for our children or what do we have for our college students or what do you guys have for this? You know what we have? We have a bunch of pardoned rebels who are living together in redemptive grace in such a way that their lives, our lives corporately, becomes far better than a youth program, far better than a Bible study for college students, far better than a choir. Or a, it becomes a display of the words of life. What do we have? We have sinners saved by grace living together in community. That's what the world needs. Friends, now we wisely need to organize and do different things, have our kids and have little Bible studies or life point groups or whatever or certain things. But friends, think less in terms of programs and think more in terms of the organic, natural, biblical living out of the gospel of every person in this room. What if we shifted the tables a little bit and the pressure wasn't on just a few to perform ministry, but because of the authority of the word of God, the pressure was on all of us to live out the gospel so that we collectively become a witness. We collectively become a model, a representation of what Jesus has done for us. Friends, that's what the world needs. They don't need a rock wall, a rock wall for their kids. They don't need a Starbucks thing in the, in the cafe. They don't need that. They don't need helpful little messages on how to manage your anger or or marriage or finances. They need the gospel and how it applies to those things. And that's our mission as a church. We believe that the mission that God has called us is local and abroad. In fact, in a couple weeks, we're going to have that missions conference where we're going to dream about how God would use this little tribe of people called Crosspoint to spread his glory, not only in Columbus, but all across the world. To support missionaries, to maybe even see people in this room called up to be pastors, preachers, missionaries, local businessmen, moms, school teachers, bankers, butchers, whatever, to be gospel-carrying missionaries to our culture. Here's a couple concluding thoughts. I know I've gone for a while and we have to receive communion. Concluding thoughts answers the answers to questions one and two never change who is jesus and how's he called us to live together those will never change i say this very humbly but i think we have the biblical gospel correct i think we see it correctly here and our theology will not change if it does i recommend that you don't walk out of here run sprint to another church that understands the gospel if we ever start trying to get cute with it and trying to be fancy and of man-centered, don't walk, run from this place. 
If our theology changes, leave, please, leave. The, question, the answer to the question of who is Christ and what has he done will never change here. The answer to question two about how we live together in New Testament community will never change. Now the answer is to question three. May adapt and take different forms as we as a church grow. You see, rather than putting all the weight on a ministry staff to craft and supervise and maintain a program that takes a lot of our energy and focuses it inward, what if we did like the New Testament churches did and we preached the gospel and we kept it simple and we just graciously and consistently applied pressure to one another for each of us, whether the pastor or the person in the congregation to actually live out the gospel and be little missionaries in whatever context God has sent you in. You see, we, we believe that the question of how he has called us as individuals and as a church to advance the gospel is going to adapt and change over the course of time through our collective talents. If God sends us somebody with some particular gift for the, that is effective in proclaiming the gospel, we'll use it. But if he doesn't, we're not going to try and create something that he has not given us. So through our collective talents and burdens and passions, the gospel pushes us out, not as congregants or consumers or churchgoers, but as gospel carriers to our community. It pushes us out. It beckons us to give our lives away. It gives rise to radical faith and generosity. It gives life to zeal and impulse to make Christ known to the nations and to our neighbors. It, it gives us the ability to see everything through the lens of what Christ has done and what we must do in response. It lets us, get, it lets us see the gravity of the moment that heaven and hell hang in the balance, that we are not here because we are churchgoers in the South and we're here to learn a message or, or think about some principles for better living, but we are here because God has called us to be his gospel carriers to a place that is lost. Lost. This is what Spurgeon writes in a sermon called The Marvelous Magnet. It's a sermon on John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, where he quotes the gospel writer that says, Jesus says that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. This is what Spurgeon says about the mission of the church and the mission of the individual Christian. He says, at this instant, the influence of Christianity, I love the way Spurgeon writes, listen to the beauty of these words. The influence of Christianity is being felt in every corner of the earth to an extent that is not easy to exaggerate. If I had an orator's power, which is ironic because he was probably the greatest preacher in the church after the biblical dudes, if I had an orator's power, I would picture my Savior casting golden chains of love over all nations. Wherever the missionary goes preaching his name, the Lord is taming the nations of man by degrees, subdues wild beasts. Jesus is gradually drawing the heathen to himself. Every century sees a marked advance in the world's condition. And we shall progress at a quicker rate yet when the church, listen to these words now, and we shall progress, in other words, in the advance of the gospel, in being a healthy church that carries the gospel. We shall progress at a quicker rate yet when the church wakes up to the sense of her responsibility and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church to turn us all into missionaries, causing us all in one way or another to preach the gospel of Christ. 
whether we're preacher or bookkeeper or school teacher or stay-at-home mama, all of us have this gospel pressure that we are compelled by the love of Christ to advance the gospel in our city, in our nation, in our world. Here's the issue, friends. Here's our vision. Uh, this French writer flew planes in World War II. He was a French poet, which makes him a little suspect in my book already. But um, this French poet, that was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. Strike that from the record. The French poet, his name was Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's the best I got. Just quoting this off the top of my head. He said, uh, if you want to build a ship, don't gather the men, collect the wood, and start giving orders. He said, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. I don't know what Antoine de Saint-Exupéry believed about Jesus. I don't know if he was a Christian. I don't know what. I don't know anything about the cat, except he had a pretty cool little quote. But whatever he meant by that, I think he's touching upon this truth. Friends, I'm not offering you a strategy for ministry or how we're going to do things in this upcoming year. I'm trying to get myself and you and all of us together to fall more in love with Jesus. That's, that's what we need. We need all of us to be captivated by the beauty, the radiance of Christ. We need to treasure him more. We need to press into his love and his greatness and his majesty and his grace and his beauty even more. And let the sovereign God of the universe take care of the rest and how he will use us for his glory. Listen to Jesus' words, and I end with these in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. He offers two quick parables. And it sums up what I think I want to say about what I'm asking us to do here. Not to do something, not to write down these things, not to start a program, not to, all those things may be an outflow of this, but what I'm asking us is to stir our affection for Jesus. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Friends, I want to see Christ that way. I want him to be the pearl of great price. I want us collectively as a group of people to be so marked with affection and love for Jesus that it just spills, that it just makes a gospel mess in our city, that it's just so unbounded. It's not something you can define. And, and when they say something about me or when they say something about us collectively as a church, it wouldn't be, oh, they've got a nice little building. They've got good paint colors on the wall. Did you see the floor? That's really neat, kind of cool. No, they've got good this, they've got, I want there to be this sort of sense that, oh, those people love Jesus, man. It's just a, it's just a beautiful mess bubbling up. It's just a, it's just a God-given joy in Christ and all that he's done. I, I want to love Jesus more. I want to 
preach more passionately about him. I want to make him clear to you and people that will come in this place. I want you to fall in love with Jesus. Friend, do you realize that's how you fight sin? You don't grit your teeth and stop downloading porn, young man. You fall in love with something that's more beautiful than that broken thing that you have given yourself to. You fall in love with Jesus. You know how you stay married for 50 or 60 years? Not by by applying some principle on how to manage anger or prefer one another. You fall in love with Jesus, and that affects everything you do. It humbles you, and you begin to see your spouse through the lens of what Christ has done for you. You know how you pick a good husband, young lady, who is desperate and wondering whether or not you're going to slip from your 20s into your 30s and whether or not you'll be married? You fall in love with Jesus, and you become more satisfied with his sorrow sovereign will in your life than any temporal blessing, whatever it may be. You know how you give your life away to the mission field? You know how young people in America give up the comforts of our lifestyle to go to difficult places? They fall in love with Jesus, friends. That's what happens. They fall in love with Jesus. They seal the pearl of great price, and they give everything for it. Oh, I want to be like that, friends. I want you to be like that. I want us to be radical risk takers that love Jesus. Let's do that, friends. Let's know the gospel. Let's live the gospel. Let's take the gospel out, and let's make much of Jesus together. Let me pray and ask the Lord to seal these things in our heart. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you because at one point in my life I was chasing broken pleasure. Pursuing broken counterfeits and settling for far lesser beauties. But in your grace, you made me alive. And you set in me the beginning of a desire for the only treasure that's worth loving you. I confess, Lord, that my sanctification and my pursuit of you since that time has been ragged and unfocused at times. And even after a revelation of your great goodness, I have so often turned back again to those broken pleasures. So, Lord, today, for me, would you stir my affection for Jesus? Would I love him more than large church? Would I love him more than money or comfort or sex or retirement or physical fitness or good food or rest or relationship? God, would you give me the unusual grace 
of more satisfaction in you. And Lord, would you do that for these people that I love so very much. I pray, Lord, that you would do that for your glory and for our eternal joy. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.